0: meet the new yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast now here
1: we go with the right mindset with the right kind of approach there's no better time than to be in this industry right now It's very exciting, it's very scary, there's a lot of change going on, but there's a huge amount of support out there. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we all face right now is helping those restaurant owner operators that have that kind of mindset, understand the pathway that they need to be on to be able to get on the kind of train to this future success.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Hey, it's Josh. Do you wanna spend 60 minutes planning out a profitable 2022 with me? Just you and me, on Zoom, camera on, pen and paper out, getting you super clear on exactly what your goals are and how you're gonna achieve them. It's free, even though the call is worth like a gazillion dollars. Go to planwithjosh.com to book that call with me. That's planwithjosh.com. To book a one hour strategy session to make sure that 2022 is your most profitable year yet. Without question, one of the foundational elements of our industry's future is food delivery. But almost two years into this delivery revolution, many of us are still struggling with execution and profitability. But what if there was a roadmap that could guide us towards success? Today we chat with Carl Orsborn and Meredith Sandlin, authors of Delivering the Digital Restaurant, Together, we tackle the big ideas in the book and offer some actionable advice on how you can capitalize on the massive demand out there for food delivery.
1: Well, my background is largely in convenience retail, Josh. I spent 15 years in that space, and when I came over to run the AMPM network over here on the West Coast, which is a 1,000 franchise locations, over a billion dollars worth of sales each year... I was just seeing just the change in landscape of how food was really just moving at such a pace in so many other verticals, but not so much in the C-store space. And so one of the things that I was particularly keen on was being able to bring fresher foods, better for you foods into the C-store environment. And we did that, and we were able to do that over a number of years. But in many ways, the pace of innovation wasn't moving at the rate that I thought it needed to. And so when I left BP, the the holding company for AMPM, I remember wanting to seek out startups that were really disrupting this space. And a mutual friend of Meredith and ours introduced us. And when I met Meredith, I was introduced to her with the idea of someone that's also left a blue chip organization to go and work in a startup. So I thought this would be really interesting just to get their advice and input from that standpoint. And it was then when Meredith said, well, yeah, I'm working for a ghost kitchen company. And that's when, obviously, I learned about Kitchen United. And over the course of a series of conversations, Meredith then suggested, well, why don't you come on board and run operations and customer success for us? And it was really through that experience and building almost the playbook, if you will, for an operating model for Kitchen United that I think both Meredith and I just saw just the way in which restaurants were having to change at a pace that they really hadn't had to change at for quite a long time. And in many ways, the fact that the whole business model was being disrupted, not just in a ghost kitchen context, but across the entire landscape, uh, specifically in the digital marketing aspect. And it was really through that that I, I think we were driving home from work one day back to Orange County. And I said to, to Meredith, you know, it would be really nice if we could get a book to give to each of our restaurant clients. And of course, the book didn't exist, but uh, a few months later, we started to work on the outline and the rest is history.
2: It's true. As is often the case when you wish something existed, sometimes you have to be the one to make it. And I think that's what Carl and I found was the world was changing so much. And we were saying the same things over and over again, as we were on the speaking circuit and talking to individual restaurants, talking to folks operating inside of Kitchen United, that we felt like there were patterns starting to emerge that we really needed to share with restaurants at large. And Ghost kitchens, I think, are at the extreme end of that change. By definition, they don't have a brick and mortar presence. They are all driven by digital marketing, all driven by online ordering. And so what for many restaurants might be 5 or 10% of their sales, maybe 30% of their sales in a ghost kitchen can be 100% of your sales. And so what we were learning in that model was extremely instructive to apply back to restaurants who were just learning and dipping their toe in with a little bit of their sales.
0: And ultimately, that's what the book is, right? It's a playbook.
2: That's exactly right. And, you know, I don't think a restaurant could read the book and go, okay, I I need to get this software and enroll in that program. It is not that detailed a playbook, for sure, because I think what works for every restaurant will vary depending on who their consumer is and what their brand stands for. But it gives enough of the why to understand what's going on and what the key decisions are that a restaurant needs to make in order to navigate their way through this
0: change. What I found most interesting, high level, is the fact that you're taking these generational, foundational marketing principles that have applied to traditional marketing and digital marketing and translating it into actionable advice for restaurant owners and operators in this new space.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So historically in America, the restaurants that have been most successful are these really giant chains, right? You think about someone like a Taco Bell, where like half of America eats at a Taco Bell every month, right? So whatever you make has to be broadly appealing to half of America. And that is a very, very different model from being able to appeal to a specific niche or type of person, talk to them directly via digital marketing tools, and offer them exactly what they're looking for. And you just use one of my favorite phrases, food is identity, which is something that we talk about in chapter two, where consumers have changed and they use food to share their identity. They use food to make statements about who they are and what they value. And what that means is they might want something that's not possible to do at scale. It's not possible to serve across 10,000 restaurants that serve half of America, but it is possible to do maybe 30 different ghost locations or in a micro niche way that is a virtual brand talking directly to a specific consumer, but is operating in a bigger kitchen that has lots of different niches that it's serving.
0: Well, and also when we look at product market fit, there's a massive opportunity when you look at that ghost kitchen model, because you can adjust your offering to where there is an unmet demand in the area that you're serving. And there's data out there that can help you make those decisions.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, we would do that same thing when it came to Kitchen United and just thinking about the right kind of offerings for the right location. And you can use data out there to help inform you as to what people are searching for. And so, you know, there would be times we would say, well, there's a lot of people searching for a Thai concept and there aren't any Thai restaurants here. So therefore let's seek out a Thai concept to come into this particular ghost kitchen location. That's the way in which I think this crazy time is really just opening up new doors of opportunity for restaurants that know which doors to walk through.
0: You framed the challenge for restaurateurs in a way that I hadn't really thought about it before. And the challenge isn't to drive consumers back to what we consider to be a more profitable service model. What we have to do is figure out to serve them in the way that they want profitably. Talk about, I guess, high level, the dangers in trying to alter consumers' desires. And then what the true solution is there?
2: I think consumers want what they want. And especially once they've been exposed to it and seen it. First in other verticals, right? Amazon brought them two-hour delivery. And then that migrated into restaurants and restaurant food. Once they've been exposed to it, they don't forget how easy it was. And instead, they just find the best place to get it. And so the restaurants that will succeed will be those who figure out, well, without a VC subsidy, how do I make this thing work? And a lot of restaurants already are. So a lot of restaurants are investing in things like first-party delivery ordering platforms, some even in first-party delivery logistics, where they're trying to experiment with different ways to give the consumer what they want, but still make money doing it.
1: If you treat the third parties as your customer acquisition engine, and then have that first-party channel that Meredith was just referencing as a means to be able to keep them, and to drive loyalty, and to be able to develop a digital consumer interface, then that's the way, that's the starting point for you to be able to build a more profitable future for that particular channel.
0: For the people that like to order through DoorDash, or Uber Eats, or Grubhub, the ones that are never going to move off-platform, how do you either A, effectively incentivize those people to get off-platform, or two transform that into a profitable model so that that doesn't continue to be a loss leader for your company?
2: I think the methods of converting people over, there's a lot of ways to do it, both through incentives and frankly, just asking people. The number one thing you can do is have a great product and serve it in a frictionless way. And those are the things that people want, right? The reason they love platforms is because they're so easy. So if you can be as easy as a platform, you have a better chance of winning them over. But the second part, I think, is realizing that there are some consumers for your particular restaurant, they're never going to switch, right? So they might order first party for the top three restaurants that they use every month that they go to really frequently. But for you and your restaurant, they go there once every six months. Like It doesn't make sense for them to convert over to first party. And recognizing that there is a segment of consumer like that, and that is how they're going to behave, and then figuring out how to design product pricing for them in that environment, that's the way that you succeed and make it profitable. And I think, you know, another wise thing that Rob Lynch said from Papa Johns in the book is, by definition, that consumer is incremental. By definition, because that consumer was never going to come to the first party, they were never going to walk in your restaurant doors, that consumer is incremental. And so you can apply to them that marginal profitability thinking and say, you know what, it isn't that we make 10% or 20% on this because that's the profitability of our entire business. It's that we make marginable profit on this person, which maybe is 40 or 50%, depending on how you run your business. And when you take those 30 points out of that 40 or 50%, you're still making the 10 to 20, right? So part of it is around not treating every consumer the same. There are just different consumers who behave in different ways. You want to put all of your focus and attention on the ones that are super loyalists to you and converting them over to first party and then helping them drive their frequency and their basket size and their usage of your restaurant. But for those who aren't that way, they can still be profitable for you if you treat them in the manner that is appropriate for the channel they've chosen.
1: Yeah, a couple of things to add to that. We have a chapter about drive through And we put that chapter in fairly early in the book because we wanted to talk about the transition that restaurants had to go through to fully integrate it into their operating model. And until it was fully integrated, it probably wasn't as profitable as it is today. And so from that standpoint, the whole theme of the book is to try and encourage restaurateurs to approach the whole topic with a mindset of the potential of this channel if you treat it appropriately. And then building on Meredith's comment, today's restaurant customer is an omni-channel guest. They might visit you in person for a on-premise experience, and next week they might choose to have it delivered. And then the week after that, they might choose to pick up. The point is is that that customer has different touch points to your brand. And I think talking about strategy, the point is, is that every opportunity you have access to your customer is an opportunity to talk about the different ways in which they can experience your food. And so rather than treating it as the stepchild of the organization, the least profitable channel, if you will, actually say your customers can be met wherever they are. And if you make that appealing and attractive, then it isn't just about packaging. It's about the overall experience being something to satisfy that need.
0: So everyone understands the importance of diversifying revenue. What I'm hoping we can do is really practically talk about what it looks like. What does it look like in the real world? If you're doing Dine-in and take-out and delivery. How else can you bring in ancillary revenue as a fast casual-to-casual concept?
2: Well, I think number one is making sure that you're serving the consumer demand that is there. And by that, I mean, if someone is ordering delivery from you, are you giving them delivery appropriate choices? So you might find that your French fries just aren't very good when they're delivered, which is true for a lot of people. Some folks are exploring different ways of packaging to address that, but other folks are doing really interesting things like changing their menu, right? Offering, say, tater tots instead of French fries, because those things carry better. Another thing that happens in delivery is that consumers don't often order beverages, and they do that for a couple of reasons. One is that they tend to be at home or at work where they already have beverages, Another is that they perceive that the beverage will not be as safe, right? Everyone talks about the delivery driver taking a sip of the milkshake. Whether or not that actually happens, people are afraid about it. So if you can think through how to offer beverages that are proprietary, that they can only get from you, beverages that feel safe, so maybe they're sealed in some way, then consumers are much more likely to add them on. And that's like the basics, right? Menu design and then figuring out how to suggestive sell those items in a delivery only context is step one of making sure that you have a diversified revenue stream. And then step two is really diversifying the ways in which you serve your customer. So a lot of restaurants over the last few years have gone into catering, but many of the most successful restaurants use the opportunity during the pandemic to pivot that catering product from an office based catering product to a family meal-based catering product. So just the audience is different, right? Instead of catering for a meeting, I'm catering for a family. And thinking through how to drive those occasions and how to get consumers to think of you for those occasions and then to purchase in bulk, that's really going to drive your check because now all of a sudden they're thinking about ordering for five or six people, three or four people, instead of ordering for one.
1: They're all a lot of folks that are trying to expand the basket size or the tray value by looking at proprietary products. How can you distinguish yourself from that bottle of Coke where you can do that by having a product that you can't get anywhere else? Uh, So that is certainly one aspect. You know, What are some of your proprietary special sauces, your special drinks that you can add on? How do you think about helping people get lunch for the next day along with their dinner from tonight? I don't know whether you do it, Josh, but when I order sushi, I typically order a roll or two extra and I have that for my lunch the following day. Right. So that kind of mentality of encouraging people just for one more item and how do you actually build your menu items in a promotional mix to be able to support that. And then lastly, the whole virtual brand piece, the whole angle of how do you improve frequency in the sense of so you, how often do you visit your most favorite restaurant today? You know, most people wouldn't necessarily say it's as regular as you might think. And so when I think about one of my favorites, I might go to it once a week, once every 10 days. I'm not really going to do much to be able to change that behavior. But if I have a virtual brand on top of that, there's a reason why I perhaps might do that. I might not even know it's affiliated to my favorite restaurant.
0: I know a lot of people that have started Ghost Kitchens, and I know people that have made an absolute fortune doing it. I also know just as many people that it's been a bloodbath for. And this is an area of expertise for you guys. You've studied the model a lot. And I'm hoping you can walk me through the fundamentals of what a successful ghost kitchen operation looks like. What are the essential elements that are needed to create that successful business?
2: Yeah, sure. So let's start with definition that we think of ghost kitchen very much as the hardware and the virtual brands that are inside of them as the software. So if you are adding a virtual brand onto an existing restaurant, In some ways, you feel like a ghost kitchen because that virtual restaurant, nobody walks into a brick-and-mortar environment and sees it, but that virtual brand is really software just riding on top of an existing restaurant, and I like the term host kitchen for that existing restaurant. The ghost kitchen, I really think of as one that has optimized itself for off-premise food production and delivery, and so it is typically much more efficiently arranged, it uses a lot of technology to reduce occupancy and labor costs. It optimizes getting food out the door quickly, matching food up to drivers, things like that. There are several different types of models of it. And we talk through kind of what the differences of those models are. And I think that all of them have a role to play. They're all quite different, but all of them have a role to play as the restaurant industry evolves and becomes much more off-premise oriented.
0: But practically speaking, is there one that seems to have a higher degree of success than the others? I think for me, it's not so much
1: about a particular model that's more successful than others. It's actually about how ready and prepared the restaurant is to change their operation appropriately to succeed within them. And that's not something that I would apply to just the smaller brands. It applies to the bigger chains as well. right? So it's such a fundamental difference that you have that kind of change of environment. And I think it's around really saying, well, how can I use this space and this capacity of my ghost kitchen to maximize the throughput rate? And that's very different to what you'd have in a brick and mortar environment. So if you can actually now think, well, I've got 24 hours of access to this kitchen and I, yes, I could sell my core brand through it, but what about the peaks and troughs of the day? What could I do in some of those troughs? And there are folks out there that are creating human grade pet food in ghost kitchen environments for that same reason, right? And why not? And so I think it's around that kind of entrepreneurship, that thinking a little bit differently, if you will, to helping people see that the ghost kitchen model can work if you think about that throughput rate as in specific kind of nature.
0: It's about iterating, right? Again and again and again and again until you find that 24 hour a day model where you're able to just generate because ghost kitchens aren't really about experience, right? They're about manufacturing.
2: Yeah, I think that's very well said. Even the ones that have a pickup aspect to it, which are a little bit more customer facing, they really are a production environment and they are optimized to produce efficiently and to get the food out to the consumer, um, you know, via driver, via pickup, whatever it might be as quickly as possible.
0: Now I'm going to directly contradict what I just said. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is why they pay me the big bucks. Because you also talk about the importance of engaging and delighting your customers, which you can do through a delivery model. I've spoken at length with Johnny Rayzone of of Hallam Ray's about this. And it's one of the things that he specializes in, is making sure that when somebody gets a fried chicken order from him, that they understand that it was made for them and that there are little surprises in there that delight their guests. Can you talk to me about the strategies that you've seen that engage and delight customers through delivery?
2: I think that is brilliant. I love it. Just because you don't have a brick and mortar environment does not mean you can't engage in hospitality and a relationship with your customer. Do you need to go all the way to having your own delivery drivers so that someone in a uniform can hand off the product? I don't think you do. I think if you can do things that make the packaging high quality, if you can do things that make the packaging branded, If your brand voice is funny, making it funny. If your brand voice is environmental, making it environmental, whatever it might be. Those are things that are going to be memorable for the consumer. We talk in the book about creating almost an unboxing experience. So if you think about it as what's happened in the direct-to-consumer equivalent in apparel and CPG, when people get a consumer product, when people get consumer electronics, They share them on the internet, right? They open the box and they let everyone see this new toy that they received. And if you think about your packaging for your restaurant in that same way, that ultimately consumers are going to do video reviews, they're going to put them online, they're going to show the product. Maybe they're going to take pictures and put it on Instagram. All of those things reinforce your brand. They reinforce your brand to the person who's receiving it and who's doing the unboxing, but they also then reinforce your brand out on social media.
1: I think the the hospitality angle is one that doesn't get talked about enough. We'll often talk about restaurant 101 in this space and the importance of just remembering why you got into this business. And a lot of people got into the business because, A, they love food, but they also love people and, and serving people. And we talk about in the driver's chapter, the importance of treating drivers right. You know, as part of the research for the book, I became a DoorDash driver for a bit. And my goodness, was it interesting just to see the experience of how people were treating me because I was, again, the stepchild of the business. I was given in the way of the on-premise operation. And that in itself tells you that if you treat a part of your value system, your service model, inferior to how you treat the rest of it, then you're going to have that translate all the way through in that kind of journey. And I think that tells us that we make a reference to the hotel industry A gentleman by the name of Lloyd Wentz who, when a a room service item was delivered late, they'd give a chocolate glazed strawberry on the dish as a way of just saying apologies. Now, that's hospitality right there. And so what are the ways in which restaurateurs can think about making up for mistakes and making up for issues when they know it's really difficult to fix a problem in a delivery transaction? you can still try and make a little bit of a silver line into those clouds. And then, of course, the other piece of it is around that digital engagement. How do you actually have an ongoing digital engagement with your customers? And that is a good reason as to why they should engage with you on a first-party platform. We speak to Zach Goldstein of Thanks, and he often is talking about personalization 3.0 and having that true one-to-one relationship. And so how is that going to evolve over the years ahead? Well, I think it's going to evolve to a place where if I am clearly a vegan eater, then I am going to be someone that doesn't want to see a menu with non-vegan items on it. So how can my first party experience actually just give me the non-vegan options as opposed to seeing everything? That's the kind of way in which things are going to evolve. And that's the reason why people are going to perhaps have a different experience in the years ahead.
0: My God, Carl, you keep laying me up. The next thing I wanted to dig into is the future of restaurants. And in the book, you two really clearly lay out a picture of what that's going to look like. And I want to walk through the four pillars together. And you kind of touched on the first one, which is the rise of personalization. How deep are we going to go down this rabbit hole? What does personalization look like in the food industry moving forward?
1: Yeah, I love this chapter. I love it because there's so many new ways in which things are going to evolve. And again, the whole idea of finishing the book in this way is to be able to say, if you have the right mindset to be agile to what's happening right now, you're going to be agile to everything that's yet to come. And so we, we talk about some of these aspects and personalization is certainly one of them. At the, the underbelly of all of this is data. And I think it's one of those areas where uh, because of the third parties today, again, one of the things that gets attributed to them is the fact that they're getting all the data. But assuming you have now got customers across to a first party platform, you've got this huge amount of data that in many ways really needs very smart engines to be able to utilize, to be able to create an environment which really is very specific to each customer. Now, today, most restaurants are doing it towards certain segments or to certain buying uh, behaviors and profiles. But I think where we'll get to is true one-to-one personalized service. And that's kind of great if the customer feels that their data isn't being misused. In the book, we talk about the idea of layering on top all these different types of data that sit outside of the interaction between the restaurant and the customer, the data from your wearable, the data from your nutritionist, what your personal trainers is advising you to do—all these different aspects coming together to help advise you what you should have for dinner tonight. And if you can deliver the data to be utilised in a safe manner, which of course is a hot topic that the federal government's looking at, the likes of uh, Facebook and with right now, then that could potentially be a future that actually people would warm to. But it's a if. And maybe blockchain is going to be a way
0: into that. What does the future of dining look like?
2: I do think it might actually get even better. And this is a hard thing to imagine when we're having so many labor difficulties right now. But as labor is augmented with various forms of technology, whether it be software or hardware, as consumers make a conscious decision about do I want to eat at home tonight or do I want to go out, I think there's an opportunity for restaurants to make the dine-in experience that much better so that for those consumers who are choosing to come into the restaurant, they're having a really special, wonderful experience augmented by technology all around them, but a reason to be in that restaurant as opposed to getting something delivered.
1: I think we're going to see the advent of dynamic pricing play into menus. I think the idea of the digital menu is going to be existing not just in off-premise channels, but in on-premise. So I think the agility of a restaurant to be able to adapt to include dynamic prices is going to be a factor that is going to be linked to the inventory levels within the restaurant as well, not just in terms of cost of products and inflation. I think you're going to see different ways in which loyalty profiles will differ as well. So you might have the special table that you always try and get access to, but now that's only available for platinum customers, much like you have on, on an airplane. So those kind of factors will
0: come up as well. The pandemic did a lot to shut down the industry, but it also did a lot to kind of highlight the foundational inefficiencies and weaknesses within our industry. And you predicted a different business model, an augmented business model for restaurants moving forward. What does that look like? Well, I think for me,
1: the model is really about just looking at this from the standpoint of new channels, new products, and new technologies. And those new channels are really around just understanding that the restaurant customer is that omnichannel customer that we spoke about before. They're going to experience food in different ways at different times, and your restaurant needs to be shaped in such a way to be able to service that. And I think we've seen the emergence of delivery and this off-premise channel happen recently. We're seeing the blurring of the lines between grocery and restaurants right now. We're seeing micro-fulfillment appear in a way that is going at such a rate with the likes of GoPuff open-up locations one a day across the country. So those are the ways in which I think the new channels are coming through. And in new products, well, I was just mentioning about plant-based proteins and the way in which that I think is going to become a growing trend for people to be increasingly conscious of the food they're putting into their body and the way in which that food affects their health and their particular mood. And then the new technologies, well, a lot of it, of course, is around reducing the price of food at delivery. We talk about China in the book and the fact that it's actually cheaper to have food delivered there than it is to go and eat out. And a big reason for that is they've removed a large amount of cost from the delivery aspect. Now, in China, it's about low-cost labor, of course, and the fleet that they use. But it's also, I think, going to be about drone technologies and automated vehicles and the ability to save money from that piece of it. When you can do that, that's going to give restaurant operators a choice. They're either going to be increase their profit margins, they're going to have that option to increase their profit margins, or they're going to redirect some of that savings back into even better food and therefore better product innovation and a better experience for
0: all of us. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you guys have any words of advice or encouragement you'd like to share?
1: Hopefully our book is one that gives those that read it a really hopeful view on the future for the industry. With the right mindset, with the right kind of approach, there's no better time than to be in this industry right now. It's very exciting, it's very scary, there's a lot of change going on, But there's a huge amount of support out there. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we all face right now is helping those restaurant owner operators that have that kind of mindset understand the pathway that they need to be on to be able to get on the kind of train to this future success.
2: The thing I most want to say to the industry is, wow, it's been a year. It's been an absolutely incredible year and a half of difficulty and challenge and opportunity and innovation And it's been really, really remarkable to see how quickly restaurants pivoted and changed when they needed to. Many of the things, you know, we started writing this book before the pandemic was a thing. And many of the things that we wrote about, we thought, oh, yeah, this will happen for sure. No question. But it's like three to five years away. And many of those things are already happening. And to me, what that says is that this industry, though it can be tough. And though this last year in particular was incredibly difficult, this industry is so innovative and so creative and willing to try new things. And that's what I love about restaurants. And I would say thank you to everyone for keeping that spirit going, even during these challenging times.
0: That's Carl and Meredith. To pick up their book, visit deliveringthedigitalrestaurant.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.